Today's guest is Jim Laritz, the former New York Yankee. He's got a couple of nicknames. The King, the second Mr. October for his play in two World Series. But we're also going to discuss some of life's tough stuff. He fell down, he got up, and he'll give us exactly what happened and how he got out in today's program. Stay tuned. Here to score it for us is the Master of Disaster Public Relations Specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the Reputation Doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. Is all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. Let's do this. This week's guest, Jim Laritz, former New York Yankee. He's got a bunch of nicknames. The King. The second Mr. October. Why is he here? What are we talking about? Let's start with this clip from the 1996 World Series. Roll tape. Again, the 2 2 to Larris. In the air to left field. Back at the track at the wall. a slider in the eyes of Lyrics. Another slider from Walt. Jim, thank you so much for being on the program. No, thanks for having me, Mike. And hey, I, that highlight never gets old. <laughs> so tell me, I, I, I like to do my research. I'm a former op research guy on political campaigns, and, I, and it doesn't matter what genre or what sector of society I am in. I just try and dive into the things that people might not know. So let's start with your agent saying, and I love this as a New Yorker, uh, jump on the four train, go up to Yankee Stadium the back way, and then go inside and there'll be someone there waiting for you. Why did he say to go that way? What was that subway experience like? And what did it feel like? Not just being in the minor leagues, but being on that field and having that experience that we know you had to walk through when you first went and got off that subway at Yankee Stadium? Yeah, listen, my agent was a born and bred Yankee fan, uh, New Yorker, lived in the city. And he told me when I was coming in, he said, listen, the first night you get into New York, you're going to stay in the city. I got you hooked up at the hotel. And here's what you're going to do. You know, I was a kid from Cincinnati, Ohio. I didn't know much about the subway systems. And all I heard was there's shootings all the time on the subways. And he tells me, Get on the subway and take it, take the four train right into Yankee Stadium, but don't go in the front entrance. Go in the back entrance. And I was like, okay. So sure enough, I get off the train, I walk into the back entrance, and the security guard goes, Can I help you, sir? I go, Oh, I'm the new guy, Jim Layritz. I said, I was told to come in this way. And he goes, Oh, yeah, sure, come on in. And so you go in the back way, and as you come down the stairs, you walk right into the monuments. 
And I was like, okay, now I get why he wanted me to come in through the back entrance. As soon as you see Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, I mean, it, it just hits you. Did you just mention Lou Gehrig? Yes, I that, did. That's a cue. So every week I wear a different t-shirt uh, and I had Colin Kaepernick on uh, in a previous show as I was talking to Lee Steinberg about sports. So as you see, I have a Yankee t-shirt on, but on the back is... Number four, Lou Gehrig. I like it. <laughs> I like it. It would have been better if it was number 13, Jim Leyritz, but... <laughs> well, and, and I don't think they if, made those then. And then if my friend Reggie Jacks, uh, Jackson were, were around, he'd be hitting me because I don't have his on as well. But, but tell me, so... I wanted to emphasize Gehrig and I wanted to emphasize the other greats in your story. So you see that obviously we all have an ego when we're doing well and you've made it. Now self goes out the window. You see monuments that are going to be there forever of the all time greats who ever played the game period, let alone for the New York Yankees. How'd you feel? Well, you know, Mike, I wrote it in my book, catching heat. Um, with my, about my father. And my father was one of those guys that, you know, he was, he was a combination of Woody Hayes and, and Bobby Knight. And he always had a way of putting me and keeping me in my place when I got a little bit too much of myself. And walking through the monuments, standing on the mound at Yankee Stadium, looking around, and then walking into the locker room and seeing my locker next to Don Mattingly. Wow. I'm like, Oh my God, this is, I can't get much better than this. And, you know, back then we didn't have cell phones, so I couldn't take selfies and all those things. <laughs> <laughs> and so I walk into the locker room and I get on the, I get on the phone in the locker room and I call my dad up and I said, Hey dad, I made it. I just walked into Yankee stadium. I just saw the monuments. My locker is next to Don Mattingly. He said, son, that's great. What are you going to do to stay there? Wow. <laughs> that was my father. So, that was like. So let's jump in from there. So one of the things you did to stay there is you had an amazing relationship grow pretty quickly with a pitcher by the name of Andy Pettit. So talk about that. And what is, for some people that don't follow sports close enough, what is it like to be a personal catcher for one pitcher? Yeah, well, it was interesting because, you know, growing up, coming through the Yankee organization, um, it was, I don't want to say it, it was difficult during those times because they didn't promote players quickly. You had to have a certain number at bats. You had to pitch a certain number of innings, even before you can move up to the minor league levels back then. And, you know, I was 26 years old when I got called up. So I was a little bit older than kids are nowadays. Um, and the first guy I actually was became personal catcher for was Sterling Hitchcock in 1995. And it was a situation that Mike Stanley, who was the other catcher and the everyday guy, he couldn't catch Sterling's forkball. And it wound up being a problem. So I ended up catching Sterling. Well, then Sterling got traded the next year. And at the end of 95, Andy Pettit gets called up. And Mike Stanley's having some trouble catching him also. And Andy went into to, uh, Buck Showalter one day and said, "Can you? Jimmy's been catching my bullpens. Can he catch me in a game? And Buck let me catch a game. And I think we, I think we won three to one. It was, a, you know, Andy pitched a great game. And from that point on, it, we went, ended up nine and three to close out the 95 season. 
Well, then Buck gets fired, all right? And then Tory comes in. And the first thing we we talk about is, okay, what's going to go on with Labrits and Pettit? Because Joe did not want a personal catcher situation. And we all sat down during spring training. And Joe said to me, listen, you're going to be Andy's primary catcher. But if there's a tough left-hander on the mound, I want to get Girardi in the lineup, his right-handed bat in the lineup, and I want you to DH. We, you know, we might play around with the, the lineup, but the majority of the time you're going to catch Pettit. And it was great because it worked out. I think I, I, I think Andy and I went like 19 and seven that year, um, and that was the year he won like 21 games. Uh, but it was such a, a unique situation, Mike, because there is no way that. If you met Andy Pettit during that time and you met Jim Leyritz during that time, that you would think these two people could intercede and be successful together because Andy was the good Christian kid. He was the kid that was you know, going to Bible study, doing everything. I was the total opposite. I was going out at night with my cowboy hat, my cowboy boots, and I was you know, a little more flamboyant. But the, the opposite attract really worked in our relationship. And the one thing Andy knew that no matter what, I cared a lot about hitting, so I knew how hitters thought, and he liked that point. And we had such a great relationship. I was just on Jeff Nelson's podcast talking about this same thing, and, and that's oh. exactly what we, you know, Nelson was there, and he said, I used to joke with Andy, hey, dude, shake him off once in a while because no one thinks you're thinking out there because you never shake. And it was, and really that's <laughs> And, and that was the truth. And I said to Jeff, I said, Andy had four great pitches. So he didn't care what I called. He had confidence throwing everything. And that's what made such a great relationship. But you could also catch any of those four pitches. Well, exactly. and, with all, and, and with all due respect to Girardi, he had some difficulty with a couple of them. And it's one of the reasons why Andy and the coaches also thought, you know, you, in, in, in you warming up with him, you weren't having those issues. Yeah, one of the things, the difference between me and Girardi where Girardi was by the book, you know, that's why he's a manager now. I mean, this guy was, he was a manager when he was playing. But I was more, I was kind of like Don Zimmer. I was like, hey, I don't care what the stats say. I see this guy. We just threw a, seven, a 90 mile an hour fastball at his head. He ain't digging back in. And if he's not digging back in, I know what we can do. So that, that was the difference between Joe and I. I did a little more feel of the game than I did by the book. You've played with other teams. You even coached for a period of time. You continue to study the game. Obviously, we went through years within the sport, and some would say there's still some struggling with steroids, performance-enhancing drugs, and even other cheating scandals like what happened with the Astros. Um, what do you have to say about those issues then? And do you believe some of this is still going on today? I, yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell nowadays what's going on because, I mean, listen, the bottom line is science always is ahead of the rules. They're figuring out other things people can take and do, and, 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 they're, and they're learning about that. But back in the day when I was playing, all the way up till 2000, I think it was 2004, when they finally implemented some of these rules, no amphetamines, no steroids, no, that, that wasn't a rule up until that point. And for me, I'm like, listen, if, if it wasn't a rule and no one was breaking it, whatever they were putting in their bodies, whatever they were doing, that was a choice. And they shouldn't be punished for that, I don't think. 
um, you know, the bottom line was it was available to everybody. I remember myself, you know, I play with Cam and Eddie. Um, I remember being, you know, hey, Leverage, you know, you're hurt. You should do this. She said, but I had prostate cancer in my family. And there was no way that I was going to take a steroid or do something that could jeopardize me watching my kids grow up and do things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was a situation where, uh, you know, the amphetamines is a whole different story. The amphetamines to get a little pick me up. That was pretty pretty much ready for everybody, whoever wanted to do it. I mean, matter of fact, it was the coffee on the left and the coffee on the right. And when you came into the locker room, there was always a piece of tape on the coffee that had the amphetamine in it. So the players that didn't want it, they knew the difference. So it was wow. kind of a, you know, it was kind of a, just the way things were. But the bottom line was, it wasn't against the rules. It wasn't against what, what, what was implemented and everybody had the opportunity. So I think that up until that point, I don't think anybody should be judged uh, for that. You know, in 2001, after I had the surgery, I tried HGH because everybody else that was taking it was healing from their injuries. I tried it, but after six weeks of trying it, my PSA level shot through the roof. So there was, I said, listen, I'm not taking a chance on cancer or tumors or anything like that. I'm not going to take it anymore. So, I mean, again, that was, you know, 2001 before it was against the rules. Um, but it was just something that just wasn't feasible for me to be able to do. But now I understood why players did it because it did help you heal quicker. It did help you, you know, to, to work out better. Um, as far as what's going on today. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is they're coming up with something new all the time. And I, I honestly think in a way that if there's something out there that's beneficial, that isn't going to, that maybe we should think about maybe giving it to these guys. We're talking 30, 20 to $30 million players that these owners are invested in. If there's a way to keep them healthy, if there's a way that's safe, maybe we should think about that instead of worrying about getting everything out of the game. What differences did you see with those just being married and loving their kids and having a good family life versus the bachelors when they first get into the league, some of them young, some of them older, did you see a difference in decision-making in all things, not just in the game? You know, unfortunately, I think as professional athletes, uh, we grow up with everything being about us. Um, and it's a tough transition while you're playing to – Okay, it's it's you know because you got to go out there and perform at a level that you know not everybody can perform at, and you're you're competing against players and, and guys that have that same ability. You have to maintain a certain edge, a certain, and so sometimes it's hard to think about your child or your family or your wife or things like that. And everybody was different, you know. Back then when I played, Mike, it wasn't it wasn't strong or you weren't considered a, a great. Uh, athlete, if you had God in your life, if you said, I'm a believer, you know, back then it was, that was a weakness back then. Now it's a strength. And I love that because I'm a born again, again. And, you know, I love the fact that the Jeremy Lins, the Tim Tebow's, these guys are out there and they're, they're, they're in their faith and they're not showing any weakness as far as their athletes. So it's becoming more of the normal to show that. Um, I think that's a big change. I think back in my day, I think it was totally different um, compared to what it is now. And it's more positive. And I think it's better that these guys are able to do that. And I think you'll probably see, I mean, when I was, when I retired, 72% of the marriages that 
uh, players before they retired ended up in divorce when they retired. And wow. I'm hoping, yeah, that has changed a lot because, you know, one of the things I remember in 2003 going into 2004, I was trying to come back from surgery and I was told by the judge in Florida after having, you know, that after, you know, coming back saying, Hey, listen, my family court judge, if you want to go back and play and you just, I had just gotten custody of the boys. If you want to go back and play, I don't care your ex-wife who's a drug addict and has major problems, I'm going to give the kids to her because you're going to be busy playing baseball. And Mike, for the first time, I was faced with the decision about what's more important, me or somebody else. And I can tell you that's when my life changed, when I made that choice to quit baseball and come home and take care of those kids. And it's a hard thing to do for a professional athlete to put somebody else because your whole life, you're the main focus. And sometimes it has to be that way to be successful. Well, I'm proud of you for doing that. I know, look, you can talk to your buddies, you can hear stories, you can read books. The day your child is born, if you're able to say at the end of that day, nothing changed. I don't understand how you can say that you're human. I mean, that's how impactful when people ask me today, it happened in my life. I literally said, and I got an ego. From that day forward, I said, them first, period, full stop. Including, let me go double and triple check that chair I just put in that car before I take him out of the hospital with the piece that's supposed to snap in before I get in the car. I mean, I, I was like, from that day forward. So I admire you for that. Let's jump in with a different question now. Um, you mentioned a judge. So there was a time in your life where there were some pretty difficult times. Um, tell me about that time. Tell me what you learned from it. What is it that you, you've certainly had a lot of time to think about it now. When you talk to various people about what that experience was like, how do you describe it? Yeah, you know, it was something in 2007, um, I had the accident where I was drinking and driving and I should have never been doing that. Unfortunately, the other driver had been drinking and driving also. And uh, it was finally after three years of waiting for trial uh, because I had a state attorney who was running to become a judge and she was kind of using my name, kind of like the Duke lacrosse situation, uh, was trying to promote her career through the headlines that I was able to get her because I was this famous New York Yankee. And long story short, uh, I waited three years because I wouldn't take a plea. And Mike, it's one of the hardest things to do when you're going through that, when, when they offer you a way out. And what, and what was that way out? Just describe it in a summary for us. Yeah. My, my attorney said, I could probably get you 10 years probation, five years, no license, a felony on your record, but you won't see any jail time. And I was facing 15 years and he's like, I think I can get that for you. And the, the state was like, okay. And I said, no, I said, it's not what I did. I drank and drove and I will accept the DUI because that's what I did. But I didn't cause the accident and I wasn't responsible for that. And I won't take anything more than that. And listen, it was difficult. It took three years. When we finally went to court, the jury with one third of the true evidence that was out there, because a lot of the evidence was suspended, the, the, just a the little bit that they got 
they saw that within 30 minutes, they threw out the charge that I was responsible for the accident and that I was guilty of drinking and driving because I admitted to that. And right. so they found me guilty of the DUI. But, you know, it was really a difficult time for the other family. They lost their, you know, their, their wife, their mother. Uh, you know, it was a very difficult time for them. It was a difficult time for my three boys because, it, you know, what, what I was going through and I was their only parent at the time. I had custody right. of them. Um, it was very difficult for both families. And we finally got to the end. And listen, I read a book called The Purpose Driven Life during that time. Rick Warren. Exactly, Rick Warren. And I gave my life back to God through that book. And I also met my current wife through that book also because she was a member of Saddleback Church. And that's that's in my book, Catching Heat also. Uh, but she is my wife today. Uh, but long story short, with all of that, um, it was very, very difficult to get through. I, you know, I was on the, I was on the brink of a great broadcasting career, working for ESPN, working for Fox. I had just covered the Red Sox 2007 World Series championship for Fox, and, and things were going great. And all I lost all of that, and it took many, many years to get it back. But one of the great things, and I want to give you a lot of credit, Mike. You and I met right after all this happened, right after I was found not guilty. And a friend of mine named Larry Davis said, hey, you know this reputation, Counselor Jimmy, let's get your reputation back right away, you know, to get you back out there. And I came to you and we talked to you and I was, you could tell that I was a little unsure because I didn't really think that I was that bad of a person to begin with. And the best advice that I got besides Rick Warren's book was from you when you said to me, Jimmy, I can take whatever kind of money you want to give and we can get your reputation. We can get all this stuff scrubbed off and do all this other stuff. And, you know, but he goes, I know who you were as a player. I know what you did for charities and foundations for those two foster kids that got adopted. Go back and continue to do what you were doing. And it's going to take you some time. It's not going to happen overnight, but you will get your reputation back. And you don't need any other help than being the person that you are because you knew who I was. And I want to thank you for that because that's the best advice that I ever got. And here we are, you know, almost what, uh, 14 years later. And you were exactly right that it took some time, but it was staying true to myself, staying true to the person I was, that my reputation has come back. Well, thank you for that. You did all the hard work. Let me interject a, a couple of things. So number one, what a lot of people don't know from the stories uh, that were made public back in those days, and of course it's sad that, that she lost her life, the woman that was also in the accident. She blew, her blood alcohol level was much higher than yours. And that is a critical piece of information that those jurors, uh, had to take a look at, and it wasn't always emphasized in the stories that and, were. And, and originally, originally that was not allowed to be in. We weren't allowed to use that. The state attorney screwed up in the cross-examination, and that's the only reason we were allowed. We weren't allowed to use her blood alcohol. We weren't allowed to use that she was driving with no lights, no seatbelts, speeding. We weren't allowed to, we had cell phone records that she was on a cell phone. I mean, there's a lot of things that happened that the jury didn't hear. But because of a mistake that the state attorney made, the blood alcohol was allowed back in. And the jury was like, wait a minute, we weren't going to hear that? Why didn't why right. weren't we exposed for that? And it, it went to show me that how the system works is why some innocent people get off 
But it's also why some guilty people get off because all of the evidence that is, even though it's true, is sometimes kept out because of certain legal ramifications. And unfortunately, right. that was the situation. Well, one of the things that you mentioned is your faith. And you caught for a guy who had very strong faith. And you said, Mike, you know, we were basically polar opposites then. Uh, but now you're born again and now you have a Christian faith. So when you talk to Andy Pettit, what does he say about that? Does he say anything about the past and how he was accepting of you and how he had learned to keep his heart open even to someone that was as different as you were to him then? And what's that like when you, you guys chat? Well, so when, when I was playing, I went to Bible study every Sunday in the locker room. Because, you know, we, they, they bring a pastor in every Sunday in the weight room and gives a sermon. And, and I used to go in there every Sunday. And Girardi and, you know, the, the really born-again guys, Girardi, Paddock, Wetland, they were like, hey, lightning's going to strike. What are you doing coming in here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> joking, joking with me. But I was like, okay, I still had from my father an upbringing that, I, you know, to, to believe in God. I just didn't always live that way. Um, and then right after I retired, uh, when I took custody of the boys and I was doing TV broadcasting and radio, I would go back and I would sit with Andy and we would talk about all this. And then when I read the book, The Purpose Driven Life, I reached out to him. But the one guy that was completely shocked was Mariano Rivera. And I gave Mariano my book and he read it and he called me up and he said, are you kidding? He goes, God bless you. He goes, I never knew that you went through all this. I never knew that God was what you, you know, I, you read the purpose driven. And he was kind of like, wow, you know, I'm very proud of what you're doing because these guys always talk to me about it. And we've all, you know, I was always open to it. I just never lived it. And the right. fact that I was living it now, uh, you know, that they were very proud to hear that God finally took over my life. That's amazing. You know, I, wasn't able to because of confidentiality agreements able to back then but i'll share some things now that uh without naming names um i went to a yankee game with uh someone in my profession and uh we we're in his box and and he says you know this is great right and he was assuming you know that i maybe not might not have had that experience before and um and he was feeling proud that he's bringing me to the game and, uh, you know, we can go inside, we can go outside, we can uh, live the elite life of being a corporate fan. And I said to him, I said, oh, no, well, the only reason why you haven't seen pictures of me in doing something similar is when I do this, it's in the owner's box. And he said, what? I said, yeah, I can't really get into the details, but uh, yeah, I said, uh, you know, I've worked with professional athletes, not the team and the league, but they know me as well. And when you do a good job and help repair an athlete's reputation, it obviously is a big plus for the athlete, big plus for their agent, big plus for the team, and a big plus for the league. So other people find out who helped. I said, but... When you see me do something, it's because I choose for you to see. This is what I do. I said, but 95% of what I do is stealth. You're never going to. 
the picture isn't more important than the relationship and even some of the counseling that's happening down there. And he said, oh. And he works in my profession, but not in the crisis space. And that's what's so important about these relationships and your relationship with Andy. Now, those who are astute to the history of the Yankees, Andy went through some problems with performance-enhancing drugs. And he's one of the few who admitted fully what he did. Absolutely part of his faith that helped him make that decision. He talked about he talks about it publicly. And even when he had a discussion with his wife about it, ultimately as to what he had done and what he was gonna do and he was gonna talk about it, he said before you she said to him as a reminder, before you do anything, you're gonna pray about it. So you don't have to have faith to understand that. What is important in this show at least is to understand that there's counsel as to thinking beyond yourself to get to the place of authenticity and owning your stuff. There's another word that people use for stuff. And if your faith allows you to do that, and I hear someone that has faith, whether they're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever their faith happens to be that allows them to get past those clouds of ego and self, that's a big, big deal. Quite frankly, Jim, it's the reason why I said to you what I said to you, which is he's got a huge rock there that he's used before, that he's able to use now more than ever. In addition to that rock, he has proven that he's putting his kids before himself and also leaning on that other big rock, that kind of trifecta of accountability is, is happening within himself. And he has a new lady in his life, in addition to that, who has her own family that he is combining families with. So you had enough of a foundation that quite frankly, some other clients don't have at all. And worse, they are lying, and then they're also asking for help. So kudos to you for leaning on all of those things to be able to not only fall down and get up, but since that time, talk about the things that you've been doing. Let's talk about all the positive things. So It's one of those things, when I, when I got approached to do a podcast again, it was the first time that I had gotten back into the media First time that I'm getting the opportunity to be back on the air. And, you know, and, and I've been waiting for that um, patiently. And um, one of the things that, you know, I, I got from it was, okay, if we're going to do this, you need to be transparent. And I was like, well, you're talking to the right guy, because if I don't use some of the pain that I've been through, some of the things that I've gone through, and I don't put it out there and don't talk about it, then I went through those experiences for the wrong reasons. You know what? I go, you, you know, God put you through those experiences to share the hurt, to share what you went through, to help others, to help other people that might be going through it. And I, I actually, you know, people always at the time when I meet people, they're like, sometimes you can tell when they're kind of like, oh, I remember you as a great ball player. I remember that you could tell they want to ask me about the accident. They want to ask me about what I went through but they're kind of hesitant. And I usually the first one to bring it up and they're like, Oh yeah. Okay. You know, you have to use the pain 
sometimes that you've been through that and share it with others to help other people. And if you don't, that experience that you went through, you went through for the wrong reasons. And, you know, for me, it was never getting drafted, making it to the big leagues, uh, having the moments that I had in New York. It was, you know, fighting the state of Florida and, you know, not taking an easy way out and saying, no, 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 no. The truth will set me free. And, you know, kind of like with Andy Pettit, he told the truth. The truth set him free because he admitted to it. And to me, that's the way I've always lived my life. It's the way I've always been. It's what my father taught me. And I always say this, Mike, when I'm at now, you know, doing a podcast, um, doing all of the other charity foundation work that I've been doing out in Long Island in New York, um, God has given me a platform to, to, to take my career that I had a lot of success but to turn around and use that platform to help other people to either, whether it's a charity, whether it's a foundation, whether it's just seeing somebody and talking to them and saying, Hey, what you going through? Oh, let me right. tell you about something. Let me tell you about what, what it took for me to get through what I went through. And maybe that'll help you a little bit. Those are the things that I'm doing now. Uh, the podcast. Uh, I, I work for a title company that, you know, commercial title work. Um, I, there's five or six different, jobs that I have that, but it's all based on the platform of being that New York Yankee, that baseball player, but also that human being that's willing to put themselves out there in, in public and, and just say, hey, ask me what you want. Let's talk about this. And I, and I think that's really the key of what God gave me through going through what I went through is share your story. Don't be afraid of it own it, but help others. And I think that's the most important thing. Well, you mentioned something that is absolutely human nature that sometimes we forget. People wanted to ask you, but they themselves as human beings know that we hide first, right? And if they see the opening that you're accepted, not only accepting of speaking about it, but in accepting of them bringing it up because you brought it up first, <clears throat> then, wow, what a healing that could happen and what an example that can happen in the midst of that. So I want to ask you a question about the Yankees, and then I want to ask you a, a, a question about your kids. So what is the relationship today like with the New York Yankees? Well, it's, it's actually been very good over the last few years. Um, you know, COVID hit, so it's you know we haven't been doing anything, uh, but the the word that I get is that all this all these bands are going to be lifted pretty soon, and I'm That's hoping right. by June, uh, Samantha Gerard and Mike Tusiani, who do the suite level and do all the things for Yankee Stadium, they usually hire me to come in and do 30 or 40 games a year, along with Andrew Levy and him and David Cohn's suite. Uh, they have me come in and do appearances up in the suite levels, and hopefully. When we open up again, that, that I'll be back up there doing that. Uh, like I mentioned, I, I work for a title company in New York and, and here in California. So I go back and forth and I do that work. But the relationship with the Yankees has been great. I mean, listen, when Mr. Steinbrenner was around, was just uh, second to none. George and I had a great, great relationship. Uh, I tell the story all the time. When I, when I got traded to the Angels, I was working out in Tampa and – I packed my bag because once I got traded and walked into his office to say thank you for everything. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, 
I don't play for the Yankees anymore. He said, go unpack your stuff. You will always be a New York Yankee for what you've done for this organization. And I continue to work out at the Tampa complex, but that was just the way George was. And, you know, it was unfortunate we lost him when we did. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Yankees are still having us come back. We're still doing things now that we're going to re- reopen. And I look forward to, uh, to being up there and, and, and doing some good work. I'm not really interested to do anything on the baseball side. People always ask me, do you want to coach? Do you want to do that? I'm like, you know what? I like interacting with the public. I like interacting with people. I like working for the charities that the organization has because that's what I want to do. I want to give back. What are your favorite charities as you're out there again today uh, doing uh, charitable work? Well, anything to do with children is always always important to me. Uh, ALS is really big. It was big because I was a New York Yankee and of course it's Lou Gehrig disease, but I lost my brother-in-law in 2010 to Lou oh. Gehrig's. Um, oh. So I've always been a big advocate and anytime ALS reaches out and says, can you help? I- I'm the first one to help. Uh, my sister has a walk for her husband every year in Cincinnati. Um, so it's, it's, it's something that, you know, that that's important. Uh, and I, out here in California, I got involved with an organization I'm on the board of, it's called the Teen Project. And it's about sex trafficking girls, uh, oh. girls that are sex trafficking. Big issue. Um, yes, and it's, Girl, most of the girls that have been timed out of the foster care system that have nowhere to go and are living on the streets and they turn to prostitution and they, they get in all these drug problems. And so we take them off the street, we put them in houses and we, we, we give them jobs. We, we, we rehab them. Yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, it's called the teen project and it's something that's pretty, pretty close to my heart also. Last question. We both have children. Yours are older than mine. Um, they're old enough to read things from the past. They're old enough to hear opinions from other people. Um, as examples for them in their lives, what do they know? What are the lessons, even beyond what you've been through, that you instill in your kids that are examples for others to hear now and maybe utilize a discussion upon hearing this interview that others need to have with their own kids because they avoid having tough discussions themselves. Yeah. I mean, most of the time with my boys, I just tell them, let the, you know, tell the truth, let the truth set you free. Um, I remember right when I had my accident, um, my oldest boy, Austin is my oldest one. He's now 26. Uh, he was only 15 at the time. And he was seeing all the newspapers. He was seeing all the, you know, everything on TV. And the first thing I said to him, and I, I, I held him and I said, Austin, don't worry. I will not see a day in jail. You, you know, I did drink and drive and I should not have done that. And I hope this is a lesson that you learn once you get your license and things like that. But I said, I won't take an easy way out of this. I'm going to see this through. And that's one of the things that I really instilled in all three of the boys. Um, you know, raising three boys was you know interesting <laughs> nonetheless <laughs> um, you know so but, but yeah well going through what we went through yeah um you know at the time and at the time you know they, they were still very young going through what they were going through and you know being in high school and hearing all these people talk about their father and you know but again coming home every night me assuring them 
Daddy's going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. We just have to get through this. And I, you know, they were going to church with me. They were doing what, one of the things that I really emphasize in my kids is that you need a higher power to get through the tough times, whether that's God, whether that's a church, whether that's something else that's, but you're not strong enough. Something bigger than you. Exactly. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've taught them. Um, You know, I got remarried and now I'm raising two daughters, helping raise two daughters and it's completely different. Yes. But, but we've raised them in a household that was Christian. My, my wife and I met because of the purpose-driven life, and that's how our relationship started. And we've kept that as part of our life continually on a regular basis, and our daughters have grown up with that. And it's been really, really awesome to see. My, my oldest daughter is now a freshman at TCU. She just completed her freshman year. And then I have another daughter that, or stepdaughter that's a sophomore in high school. And they're just good, solid girls because they were being brought up in a house that there's a lot of love, but there's also a commitment to God and a commitment to their faith that's important. And uh, all three of my boys see that, and they have kind of adopted that in their lives too. What a great message and an example for all of us. So thank you so much for spending time with us here on Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Reputation Doctor. We talked about easy things, tough things, lessons in life for everyone beyond sports. And I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. No, Mike, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And again, thank you for that advice you gave me many, many years ago. It's why I'm here today. Thank you. Oh, I really appreciate that, Jim. I look forward to keeping in touch. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to get you on my podcast. Like, right, you know, I'm kind of, kind of doing things accordingly, so... Um, we'll get you on there because I think some of the things that you've done is important for people to hear also. Happy to come on your show. Thanks, right, man. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Michael. My rep doc opinion of Jim Laird's, where do I begin? First, what an amazing guy, huh? He's gone through some tough stuff, but he's absolutely finishing well. He's learned from his mistakes. He leans on his faith. He has an amazing family. He wants to be accountable to his children. He's learned how to be uh, transparent and also accountable for his actions. I think that's a great lesson for all of us. He was not only a great catcher, he was a great hitter. And boy, when he put that leg out and started those spirals with the bat, that made everyone look at him and say, is he actually gonna hit that ball? He made sure we knew the answer to that with the clutch home runs that he had in two World Series. What an amazing legacy. To play among giants for one of the best teams to ever play the game, the New York Yankees. Today's episode was not just about sports. Today's episode had a bunch of life lessons. Say the truth. Lean on it. Be transparent. Be accountable for your actions. And live your life like you're being followed by the media because in today's world, you are being followed by the media. And it's individual people who have a smartphone who are today's journalists. There's nowhere to hide, so you might as well own it. That's a great lesson for not only those in sports, 
but for all of us who live on this earth. So remember, lean on truth, make sure you do the right thing, and when you make a mistake, be an example not only for yourself and your family, but for society. Thank you, Jim, for sharing those messages with us today. We're gonna keep on top of what you're doing, and we're gonna make sure that we handle things the same way ourselves. Thanks so much. And thank you for joining us today on Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Reputation Doctor. As always, you can find our show on the YouTube channel, hit that red subscribe button, and you can also hear it in audio version on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. But always remember, less head work, more heart work. Peace.